Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 2. Let's pray together. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've made it to chapter two. Hallelujah, it's taken us a minute, but we'll do all of chapter two today in John's gospel. As we're approaching the Passover in Jerusalem, I'll give you the title of the sermon in a minute, it's a doozy. Um, I say that because you had about three options. When you're covering all of a chapter, you've gotta figure out how to kinda loop it all in, and you can try to be clever and fall flat on your face. So your, your options this morning were limited, not very original, but here's the title of the morning's sermon. You'll need some extra ink, I think, but it's, Behold the Power, Passion, and Promise of Jesus. Your other option was John 2. So I thought at least we would say something about Jesus in the title, okay? We are on our way to the Passover in Jerusalem. Now John does a lot of writing actually around the Passovers. And he's doing that. I'll bring up the point as to why again in a moment. Some of you have already studied some of this in your Sunday school time, in your Bible study hour. Our students, middle and high school and adults, are ahead of us in a survey of John. But they're going to stop in Cana on the way. That's the text that Jeremy read for us this morning. And then they'll lodge in Capernaum for a moment and then make their way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of teaching that's come out of this passage. Unfortunately, a lot of bad teaching that's come out of this passage. People get fixated in John 2 on the wine. Wine lovers that love wine too much love that Jesus' first miracle was about wine. And Jesus' first miracle had nothing to do with wine. It was just an illustration for a point. I think that might be the wrong focus. Uh, some people use this to say that Jesus will change whatever is in your way for your best life, and he's going to make it into something so you can have the best now. That does violence to the text, actually, I believe. that um, That's called eisegesis, not exegesis. That's where you put in what you want and make it sound preachy. Uh, that's rubbish, by the way. Some people will go to the next part of John 2 where Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and say, praise God, he is validating my anger against church people. Wrong. It is uh, not a license for you to bring a whip to church. We will not begin doing that, although we strive to be biblical. Uh, some people say it's Jesus rejecting traditional church. Not really. It's, there's a little more to it than that. All of these, though, say more about us than they say about the text. You see, when, when people come to the Bible who are addicted to pleasure and are driven by this YOLO, you only live once culture, it affects how we live, how we pray, how we worship, how we give. We act like God owes us something now. He does not. He does not. It's his grace and mercy that you inhale and exhale while you're seated on the pew this morning. When we love to see Jesus confront others in their sin 
And we're like, get him, Jesus. I've actually heard that said before. Get him, Jesus. And we love to see that happen more than we want God to take the whip to our own heart and root out anything that would rob him of his glory in our temple. That's not a healthy place to be. This morning, if we look carefully at the text, I believe that God will guide us beyond the wine, beyond the tables at the temple, beyond the call for a sign in the third section to what matters most. This morning, as we try to focus on the main thing in the text, I'd ask you to write down this first header as your guide this morning. Verses 1 through 12, I want us to notice the transforming power of Jesus. The transforming power of Jesus. Now, the text has already been read. I'll highlight a few verses, but let's go back through the narrative. Mary is at a friend's family's wedding, and Jesus has been invited, and he shows up with five of his disciples, and they run out of wine. Now, while I'm sure many of us have been to many different types of weddings, some we've enjoyed very much. I have several weddings. I gotta tell you, just a side note here. I don't know what you think senior pastor's opinions of weddings are. But can I just tell you something? They're some of my favorite things. And I'm gonna tell you something else that may sound morbid. I hope you don't hear it that way. But weddings and funerals are some of the most precious things that I get to do. It is the high point where I get to point to Jesus in a couple's life. And it is a point where there is so much brokenness and sadness where I can point to the only hope that lasts for eternity. I love being with folks at their highest highs and their lowest lows. That's the call of the shepherd teacher. I love that. Jesus here is at the wedding, and we've all been to some good ones that we've enjoyed, right? And I know you won't say this too loudly because they might be in the room, but you've been to some that you endured more than you enjoyed, yes? Where the pastor went, and you're going, come on, right? I don't know if it was that or if the I don't know what it was, what the factor was, but there were some that you're like, oh my goodness, are we ever getting out of here alive? Weddings were a big deal. Before there was a wedding industry, there was a huge cultural moment of the wedding in Jewish traditions. In fact, in Jewish culture during Jesus' day, weddings were such a big deal and the traditions of the celebrations within them that it was more than just etiquette and hospitality that we see here in the passage. A Jewish family reading this gets it immediately. We need some help. It's a bit of a bridge we've got to cross to get back to what's going on. In the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential, okay? It was essential. Not so the guests could drink to excess, that was forbidden actually, but it was a symbol of exhilaration and celebration and a symbol of what God was doing in their midst. It was of such great importance, I want you to imagine this being the reality, I want you to feel the weight of this, that if you showed up to a wedding and there wasn't wine, you could sue the family and win. Please do not submit any suggestions for communion. Uh, This was back in that day. I mean, that's how serious of a traditional celebration and observance this was. Imagine being one of the ones in the back realizing, oh no, we're out of wine. 
That's how big of a deal this was. I want you to feel the weight of this. The family's reputation was at stake. That they risked distracting from the beauty of God and the covenant of marriage. And they, they, they were breaking down in hospitality. And the dreams of the bride and the groom and the family were about to be dashed as couples would leave this thing remembering what didn't happen instead of what did happen. Can you feel the weight? It's not just... The bar ran out of something. That's not what's happening here. To the Jewish mind, wine symbolized joy. Rabbis would say in that day, without wine, there is no joy. Some writers suggest that Mary's words could have very well translated to Jesus, they're running out of joy. They have no joy. And at this precious time in life that should be filled with everything good, their joy had run out, and then Jesus steps in. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, period. Watch this. Mary told the servants already, remember, whatever he says do, do it. Praise God for people that listen. Imagine that. 2023, again, that's a bridge to like, we got to go back in time. But people listen sometimes. They did it. They filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What's the reference about the purification jars? Why is that there? What's the big deal about that? Why would John's gospel writing include the purpose of these water jars that were over to the side? Why would he do that? Why would both authors point us in that direction? John and God. There's something bigger at play. Does it just make the story more interesting? Does it give texture for the folks that are working on the uh, cinema adaptation of this, that these, these jars are kind of special jars? Or are they dropping something big on us as this is what John records as the first sign that people would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? The detail shows that the rituals associated with the old covenant are giving way to something greater. The shadow of the law is being replaced with the substance of the lawgiver. Jesus is here and things are already changing. It's so subtle. Few people would have picked up on it at the ceremony, but the water of the ceremony has been replaced with something better. External purification. They would use this water to rinse the outside, and Jesus was signifying here, I'm going to do something new on the inside. Can I tell you that Jesus is more interested in your heart than your habit? Now, he wants behavior to match what's going on inside. Make no mistake. The Bible says that people watch us, and if they don't see holiness in our lives, they don't see God. So we live and walk and move in a way that's different from everybody else. But it's possible to fake a whole lot of that and be a good, moral, church-attending, upright, checking all the boxes, citizen, and Christ to not have your heart. Jesus is about transforming the ritualistic habits that we have into a new heart. There's another lesson here, and it'll become clearer as we finish the text this morning, but I want you to notice that the, the taster, the master of the ceremony said this, man, you saved the, the best wine for last. No, they hadn't. Remember, this family 
had put the best they could afford. I mean, the best the world had to offer at their pay grade and what they could afford, the best they could get, they had already served. And they ran out. (laughs) And the only way something better would come is for Christ to make something new. I want you to hear me. There's several lessons here, but I want you to hear me carefully this morning. The best that the world has to offer will eventually run out in your life. There will not be enough good things of the world to satisfy you. You were made by God, but you were made for God. You will never have your thirst quenched by the best the world has to offer. You need to be transformed by Jesus Christ himself. Only he can satisfy the longings of your life. Only he can satisfy the longings of your heart. Whether you realize it or not, Jesus is not only um, in this moment transforming an old way into a new way. He's not only transforming water into wine. He is demonstrating as Messiah that he alone can do the most magnificent transformation. Watch this. He can take a rebellious sinner bound for hell and make them a saint that glorifies God. Jesus wants to make you new, not better. He didn't make this the best water they had ever tasted. He didn't enhance the water. He made something new. After the wedding, they spent some time in Capernaum. Jeremy and I were looking at the pronunciation of that, and he, showed, he said, what if I say Capernaum? I said, it's funny you say that because our Jewish guide in Israel said that, and that's the way he said it, and they said it there in the culture today. I don't know, Jesus, when he went to Capernaum, and I think in that moment I leaned over to my wife as I had done oftentimes, and she still giggled. It wasn't funny, but she still giggled. That's what wives do. Thank God, right? Husbands, they still laugh at some of our jokes. And I'm like, I wonder if he knows it's Capernaum, <laughs> right? The Israelite giving us the tour in Israel, right? I'm correcting on its pronunciation. But uh, they spent some time in Capernaum and rested up and then Jesus heads for the temple. And I want to give you the second point and bear with me for just a moment. I really don't know when I look at the text of a better word to put with it. I doubt it's a word you'd put with Jesus much, but I want you to notice his terrifying passion. In the next section of the text, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people that want to meek and mild Jesus that fits a painting on the hearth. Um, A Jesus that just goes along and gets along. A Jesus that's just a social activist to make life better. A Jesus that just wants peace. Uh, A Jesus that doesn't want to rock the boat, so to speak. No, I want you to notice the terrifying passion of Jesus in the next verses. John wants to make sure that we never lose sight of who Jesus was and why he came. That's the reason he keeps hanging out around Passovers in Jerusalem. They're walking into this. He's more than a wise teacher. Jesus is more than a main character in a good story worth telling. He came to this earth because of the Passover. He came to fulfill once and for all God's requirement and promise of a spotless lamb who would take away the sin of the whole world. With that in view, let's read the passage together in verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. 
He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's sink in for just a moment. I'm sure you've heard this account before. If you've studied your Bible, read your Bible, looked in the New Testament, righteous anger on display. Jesus didn't lose it. He didn't fly off the handle. This was a calculated and God-honoring response to what he saw in front of him. Maybe you remember the other times it's mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. But here John gives us the first encounter. The details are right there in front of us. I want to dig just beneath the surface, though, and learn some of the lessons from the text. The temple was the place on earth where God was supposed to meet with man, and man was supposed to meet with God on his terms. It's designed to be a place of prayer, worship, sacrifice, And the place where Jesus was engaging and saw this happening was in the outer court. This is where the Gentiles would come with the hope of discovering Jehovah God of the Jews. So it was the place where the most, watch this, the most lost of the lost, if there is such a thing, would come to discover who God is. And the people who were supposed to be in charge doing the right thing, contending for the holiness and the glory of God, had let selfish greed and pride get in the way of what matters most. Kent Hughes writes this, the way we worship reveals what we think about God. The way you worship reveals what you think about God. One more time for effect. The way you worship reveals what you think about God. Now, what did Jesus think about God? And some of you have already pulled your wire rim glasses off, twiddling like this and say, Pastor Chad, Jesus was God. (laughs) I know that, yes. He was truly God. He was also truly man, which means he thought perfectly about God. He thought perfectly about the Father. He he understood the holiness and the power and the authority of God. And because of that, he was passionate about God's house. You see the second sign here? I don't want to get ahead of myself. Two signs at play. For zeal of your house, your zeal consumes me. That thing the disciples said, they recognized, they remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That was a sign of the Messiah that he would be consumed with zeal for God's house. Jesus comes up passionate about the right things and sees the wrong things taking place and he responds in a calculated way. Why? Because worship has been perverted. There's no other word for that. The transformational has been traded for the transactional. The treasures of heaven are being hidden by the greed of man. And we've all seen it in modern day church, haven't we? In this celebrity culture of pulpits and pastors across this nation, in every denomination, in every sphere of faith and practice, we've seen abuses, haven't we? We've seen abuses. I want to tell you something. Jesus is opposed 
to that. They didn't follow Jesus and wind up there. That's not what happened. The first messianic sign that we saw is Jesus' power. The second is his zeal for his father's house. He didn't lose his cool. He has a righteous, angry reaction that is rooted in religious irreverence of the Jews toward God. Remember that opening passage I read from down there and I thought, man, this may seem strange. What is this First Kings passage in 8? This descriptive, not prescriptive, but descriptive thing that happened in the Old Testament when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Solomon's temple. Let's look at it again. They come back into the holy place and a cloud fills the house of the Lord, verse 11, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Remember this, Jesus is God. He's always existed. So he saw this happen. He was there. This is God. You with me? This is what the temple was made for. The glory of God. He shows up and they've turned it into a circus. And he says, not on my watch. To glorify God was the very purpose of the temple. So when Jesus sees the sin of the money changers and religious authorities, he is enraged. While they were proclaiming holiness to others, they were denying it in practice. Our Lord opposes anything that detracts or distracts from his glory, especially in worship. Our Lord opposes anything that detracts and distracts from his glory, especially in worship. This may not seem relevant. Passion of Jesus, him doing this in a temple that we know has been destroyed. But I contend to you that it should strike a holy fear in us today. Because the Bible says of us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's just a, a reflective question for you. If Jesus were to come <laughs> to your temple, would he get an open door or would he need a whip to get in? What's in the way of God being glorified in your life? What's hindering your worship? And it's not somebody else. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me this morning. What's, what's clouding us up? from being in the presence of the glory of God. A.W. Tozer wrote that we have lost our sense of majesty. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly and to meet God in adorning silence. Hear this line. I want you to listen to this one sentence and then I'll tell you what year he wrote this. It's fascinating. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. 1961. What would he say today? I think about church all the time. Well, not all the time, but a lot of the time. I think about church a lot of the time. I think about you all the time. I really do. I think about not just the building, although we you know, do think about the building some, right? That's kind of important. <laughs> we have a building to, to take care of and that we worship in. But, but I do. I think about it a lot. I pray fervently over these years that I have served as your pastor. I've endeavored to create a culture of prayer and worship and evangelism and discipleship 
and a biblical community that glorifies God. I've endeavored to do that, but I want to tell you something. I have never, ever in my life been as passionate about God's people as Christ is. That's why he's the great shepherd. And I'm an under-shepherd. He's in charge. His zeal, his passion is the one that gets things done. What power Jesus has on display, showing that he's the Messiah. What passion he has on display, showing that he is the Christ. And then lastly, I want us to look at this final section of the text this morning, at this incredible promise that he gives them in verses 18 through 22. I know we're moving quickly, and if you go back and read this, I believe the Holy Spirit will show you some other great lessons from the text. But I'm going to point to Christ and hold him up as the most important. In the last section here, we look at, start at verse 18. So he's had this moment, and now the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build up this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22 is a postscript for us that John gives us. It's kind of got the benefit of hindsight, but look at this. He said, when he said about that being raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed from the scriptures the words that Jesus had spoken. So this has already happened, the resurrection. When John's writing this, he's writing this, going back and writing this. And he says, hey, this is the text that came to our mind. We all remember this moment when Jesus rose from the dead. We were like, ah, yeah, that thing he said in the temple, he was fulfilling it right then. I want you to notice just a couple of things here that I find incredibly helpful in my own life, especially in my prayer life. I don't know if you're like me, but does anybody in here need God to do something? You've got something very specific that maybe you're praying for, very specific in your mind, and you want to see God do that thing. And you're like, Lord, I want you to do this thing. I believe it will glorify you if you do this thing. I think it's in line with your will. Please, please, Lord, please do this thing. And we can get like fixated, if we're not careful, on defining God by if he does that thing or doesn't do that thing in the box that he does it in. Let's look at what's happening here. He's gone through with his whip, and he's demanded a reset back to what matters most, to glorifying and worshiping God. And the onlookers say, give us a sign to prove that you can do these things. Show us something. We need to see something. I don't know if they had forgotten the baptism where the heavens opened and like the voice happened. I don't, I don't, they probably hadn't got the telegram yet from Cana of what had happened with the wedding. They, they totally missed when he said for zeal, uh, you know, he's consumed with the house of the Lord. They, they've missed all of that. But I want to remind you, Jesus doesn't owe them anything. He's not stepping into the circus to do some sideshow in the moment. He's going to drive them to what matters most, and I want you to notice what he does. Instead of giving in to their demands, he gives them the word. He gives them a promise. Is it a promise that their needs are going to be met? Is it a promise that really, I mean, if, we're, if we look at the text, does it really even match what they're asking for, asking about? Nope. Does it match the central doctrines and theme of Christianity? Yep. That he's the one who will die, bear the sins of the world, and the only one that will rise again on the third day. Jesus doesn't play their games. 
He gives them what matters most. The new and the living way points them to the promise of his glorious death and resurrection, and they don't see it. They think he's talking about something else, but I want you to ponder this. They wanted a sign, a demonstration of power, and they wanted an immediate answer to what they were experiencing, and they demanded that Jesus give it to them. And Jesus points them to the resurrection. His substitutionary sacrifice for our sins on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the grave was not enough to satisfy them. Oh, it's going to get tough because I had to deal with my own heart on this. Is it enough for me? When I'm waiting on an answer for God that I feel like I, I mean, I should get. Is Jesus enough if the answer never comes? Is Jesus enough for you? I mean, is that who God is to you? Let me tell you where it'll show up on how you worship. If Jesus is enough. Are you so hung up? Sorry. Am I so hung up on getting my way and getting God to work on my terms that I miss Jesus? Later, Jesus would say in Matthew 16, an evil An adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What you may need more than an answer to that prayer that you've been hanging on to is a transformational work of Christ. And if you've already experienced that in your life, you may need to be reminded that that's the main thing. Let everything else fade and go to pot. You need Jesus. And Jesus wants to be not only in your heart, as we used to say in the old days, he wants every nook and cranny of your life, so much so that you can't but speak of Jesus in the marketplace, in your home, wherever. We need to get into the word and fall in love with the promise keeper more than we need an answer to a prayer. As Julia steps to the piano this morning and we prepare our hearts to respond to this. Jesus came to make you new. He didn't come to make you better. He didn't come to upgrade your life. That's not the business that he's in. He came to take the ordinary sinner and create an extraordinary work of art. A redeemed, repentant sinner who knows, loves, and obeys Jesus and follows him on mission to make disciple-making disciples for his glory. Jesus is God. And through him, God has come to man in a new and unique way, a way far greater than he was in the temple. The temple was where sacrifices were offered for sin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. This text is not about wine or weddings or temples, tables, or signs seen. It's about the transformational power, the terrifying passion, and the timely promise of the only one who is all-powerful, supremely passionate for your soul, and able to keep every promise. Let's pray.
Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us so that we might glorify Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Join in worship.